Hey, Maggie. Hey, Anna. Guess what? What? Um, we have more solo fest here. We basically have the entire solo fest yes. here. I yes. mean, the important ones, anyway. So we're going to be talking to... Elaine Gale, who wrote and is the single woman performer of her show, One Good Egg, which she started here in Santa Barbara and, you know, is now moving it around. She's doing it in New York. She's uh, soon, hopefully, going to be doing it in L.A. She's thinking of touring it. And we also have her associate director, Jan Ruskin, with us. Very exciting. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Hello, Anna. Hey, Maggie. How are you today? I'm doing well. It looks like you've brought some guests. I have brought more of our New York artists, Uh, our Santa Barbara, who transplant and get to go do their work in New York. And again, like we had Annie and Risa on last week, uh, this week we're going to be discussing One Good Egg, which was in the United Solo Festival for the first time. Oh, awesome. So this is another discussion of these little shows that, you know, start here and grow and become these big phenomenons out in New York. It can happen. It does happen. It's a dream. It is the dream. And here it is in our living room. So (laughs) here it is. We'd like to welcome, hello, Elaine Gale, the writer and... And producer and performer and everything of One Good Egg. How are you? Oh, thanks, Maggie. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. And who do we have here? We have Jan Ruskin, who is your associate, associate director. Associate director. Associate okay. director. Glad to be here. Well, welcome, thanks you guys. Yeah. So let's just start off with a discussion of what it was like to do the United Solo Festival. Well, it was, it it did feel like a dream. I mean, actually to go to New York and perform. And I was so excited about it. And it was so different, just the energy of New York City being a part of the backdrop and the foundation of the of the show was something that I'd never experienced before. And just have that thrumming of Broadway, like a few streets Mm -hmm. over, you know, it just felt so exciting. We were on 42nd Street, um, on Theater Row. And just all the logistics of, you know, getting buzzed in and carrying your 400 suitcases with all your props and your stuff. And um, it was just so exciting. It was really thrilling. Um, and the show, it, the the festival itself was incredible. So they yeah. curated from all over the world, uh, over 100 shows from people with all kinds of topics and um, it was neat also to meet all meet so many of the other solo artists. Um, and for me, it's, you know, a solo show is just developed in community anyway. It's not, you know, really solo. So right, um, just right. to have that feeling of, oh, there's all these other artists out there in the world doing this and all their teams and all their people. And so it was really exciting. Nice. So who describe your team? Who helped you along this journey in starting from, you know, just the basic writing to this whole production? Well, the first person um, on board for this production was Julie Fischel. And she's a professor at UCSB in theater and dance. And she was my director. And she was amazing. And um, just was incredible and just brought so much rigor to the process. Um and brought so much. She's really, she's hilarious. So, and I'm from Nebraska. She's from Indiana. So we called ourselves, you know, Miss Nebraska and Miss Indiana and <laughs> working on the show and going to New York. And she had lived in New York City for over 10 years. So 
she was really um, a veteran of the whole scene and really was a fantastic guide for me um, in helping me kind of learn the ins and outs. And what was so fun is about, a, you know, a month or two into the process, we ended up um, getting Jan on board as associate director. And Jan didn't go to New York with us, but her participation in this was um, incredible and essential. So it really felt like this wonderful female team. Yeah, and then nice. we had Tyler Kuntz, who's a, a graduate of UCSB, who was fantastic. And he was our stage manager and our sound designer. Oh, and great. he went to New York also. Great. So it felt like, you know, Santa Barbara takes New York, <laughs> takes a big bite out of that apple. So it was nice. Yeah. So, so Jan, what was your particular input on this project? What do you feel as though you put your fingers on? I put my fingers in and on to Elaine's heart and soul, mm. I think. So when I came on board, Julie and Elaine were already working. Um, and then I was able to come in underneath. And as Julie started school, I was able to come in and do the associate director thing, take what she had already set, you know, sort of as a structure, and then work with Elaine to kind of tease out those pieces of her heart and soul that needed to help thread it all together. Um, we ran lines, we edited. And I think, Jan, we had a lot of fun with some through lines in the piece, too, like Dorothy Gale, my little, you know, my spirit sister from Kansas, and <laughs> this whole idea of, um, you know, bringing her throughout the show also. So we, we had a lot of fun in the rewrite process. And it well, was really great to augment Julie's direction and have just more people on board to help. For for. The listeners that aren't familiar with the piece, what what is the piece about, just basically? Um, well, I would say One Good Egg is a, a, in a way, it's a midlife reckoning. And in a way, it's, you know, looking at um, my life and, and just kind of trying to figure out um, when you don't, when you don't get something that when a dream doesn't come to fruition, then how do you negotiate your life? And how do you live with something that doesn't happen for you. Um, so that's a big part of the show. There's, a, of course, a big theme of eggs mm -hmm. in the show, a theme of fertility. Um, and also, uh, I used to call it One Good Egg, a love story. So it's also really a story about my marriage. Hmm. And, um, you know, but it's also a story about love in terms of love for myself and self-love and really kind of birthing that sovereign part of yourself that um, loves yourself and accepts yourself and accepts everything in your life and just welcomes everything. And, um, the resilience of, uh, keeping that spirit of the life force that an egg embodies, um, alive in your life, no matter what age you are, no matter what your circumstances are. I think that was something that we were all really present to, Julie and Tyler and I, that this was a personal piece. This isn't a, a, a redo of somebody else's that every everything had an origin in Elaine's life and in her emotional progression through a very interesting time. Um, and having Tyler there, I actually was really sweet. And he kind of held a, a masculine space in a, a group of women, um, I think without even realizing it. He was an amazing team member. He's incredible. Everyone just was amazing. I felt so lucky to have all of us on and board for fun. it. fun. Yeah. There was yeah. so much fun and <laughs> yeah. laughter yeah. and tears throughout the whole process. Well, my question is, when I first saw One Good Egg, I was blown away by it. 
Uh, but this was a couple of years ago now. And so how has it changed? How has it evolved in that time? Because when I first saw it, it was still a one-woman show, but it wasn't parceled out in the way that I think that you have changed the structure of it at this point. Right. So the production you saw was at Center Stage in 2017, I right. think. So since then, um, and under, you know, with Julie's direction and her dramaturgical skill, mm-hmm. we really went back to the script. So I love her allegiance to the script. And she talks about that all the time, just, you know, that that's really where everything has to start and end with is, you know, what are the things that you're saying? And of course, staging and everything else and the lighting. And But what does the script say? And what's the arc of the story? And how does the story develop? And um, what's the connective tissue? you know, between all the pieces in the story. So we just went back to every single word in the script and every scene in the script. We cut scenes, we tightened things, we took whole scenes and made them into a sentence, Mm -hmm. you know. And so the ligature of the piece is really tight now Mm -hmm. in a way that I find really satisfying as a writer. And I think for me, you know, being a writer is my creative family of origin, not theater or performance. So Mm -hmm. I really came up through being a journalist at the LA Times and getting my MFA in creative writing. And so for me, that part of it was just like delicious and just so fun. And then we put a lot more comedy in it. We just strung Mm. more comedy and like more things through the whole entire thing. So the piece really feels like me in a way that I love. Um, Where a little bit, I think before, because I was, you know, more new to theater. So I've been doing storytelling and comedy and writing for a long time, but theater was new. It was very intimidating (laughs) to me. And, um, you know, I kind of felt a little bit like an outsider, an imposter or something. So I feel like maybe the first round I was trying to, you know, do it the way theater would do it or something. And then this time it was like, oh, let's, you know, let's really uh, tighten the story and and make the voice really consistent and have it be really um, coming from this place of um, my spirit, if that makes sense, and my voice. So that's really strong now. Yeah, I mean, if, when we're talking about like these one person shows, it's it really is in a way that's even more than like a show with a bunch of people telling a story. It is personal, personal storytelling. Mm-hmm. And part of that character is you. It's not just the actions that you're describing. It's the way that you describe it. So I think that what really makes these pieces shine is when you can really marry that content to the character that you're presenting it with. Yeah. And I ended up kind of under realizing that the show is a mashup of comedy, storytelling and theater. So it really is a hybrid. Um, And I like that. Like I'm a hybrid of Nebraska and California. And I'm kind of a hybrid of being like a journalist and a professor. And, you know, so there's all these ways that I feel like a hybrid and I always have. And so it's, you know, it makes sense to me that my show would kind of be like that. But I was doing comedy and not satisfied you know, mm. with the range of the story that I could tell, it was so truncated and yeah. set up punchline and, you know, the Hannah Gadsby, you know, right. situation. And then just doing storytelling festivals, I felt like a little like that was a little flat for me. I love the theatricality mm-hmm. and being able to use the the theater as the space of invention and surprise and discovery in a way that you can't in a in a comedy store or that you can't sure, just right. telling a, a flat, you know, a story flat. So I love that part. And what was so great about you, Elaine, is um, when you're telling your story, uh, there are so many sort of raw and poignant moments. And the comedy allowed the audience to actually 
soak that in and absorb that. There are a lot of tears in the audience, mm. a lot of laughter. But with that mashup, um, the transmission of your message and your gift and your story for what it might mean personally to every person in that mm -hmm. theater sure. is able to take hold. Like, you know, comedy sort of becomes the the pathway in. Right. I was wondering why coming from, well, in a way you answered this question, but what made you think from sort of the outset, it sounds like this is going to be a enacted or a theatrical or a dramatic piece. Like this can't just be a flat or a published thing, a reading right. experience for somebody. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, in some ways I've been working on the memoir, the two dimensional version of this for years. Mm. And that's really how the material for the, the piece got started. But then I took a solo show class in LA for six months. So every Saturday I drive to LA and do this, uh, you know, we have 25 sessions and then did a reading at Beyond Baroque. So that's how the show was birthed in 2016, even though I'd been kind of writing the material for years, for five years, but for me, it almost feels like a 3D memoir. And I guess I the way I answer that is just that my body wanted to be involved. And I really wanted to tell it like a three-dimensional memoir. And But I've had to learn a lot from people in theater. And I feel like I've kind of apprenticed myself, you know, to some people <laughs> in town. And um, Rod Latham has been an incredible influence mm -hmm. for me, who was my first director. Julie Fischel, amazing influence. So there's all these people in town who have kind of taken me under their wing and are teaching me all these things about theater. And I just feel like it's such an incredible space to embody these stories and to use the conventions and the theatricality, all the, the things that theater gives you and this grand history and, you know, all of that, that um, really enhances storytelling. Like at its base, theater is, has a story under it. It's like the foundation that, you know, the soil of it all is a story. So to me, it's just been this super exciting, um, you know, new terrain. I see. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what crosses over? What have you found crosses over between what you have learned from the theatrical experience? Do you use any of that now when you do readings? And what from the readings did you take into your theatrical experience? Oh, I love that question. Um, now they're informing each other all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, there's always a way to just be inside what you're saying um, that theater always embodies. You know, um, even though I'm not a trained actress, just being inside something and saying, having the whole thought out there in the space um, and not just kind of generating it in kind of a flat way. I mean, you can feel when somebody's coming to something and generating it like with their heart and their whole body and their spirit. And it just has a different quality to it. It's incredibly compelling. Yeah. It's just so compelling. So for me, if I'm, even if I'm, you know, asked to go and do a reading and I've got the script and there's no dimensions of theatricality involved in something, I always want to come with that sense of aliveness and come with that sense of, you know, anything could happen that the theater has with it. Um, and I think that's, it makes the space so thrilling. And I think also there's like a presence in theater that you just can't deny. I mean, you're just, it's, it's really about presence in an age 
where presence is a incredible, valuable commodity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all on our phones. We're all walking into walls. We're all, you know, like, <laughs> what can I Netflix? What can I Google? What can yeah. I? So that sense of like, hey, I have your full attention. Your phone's in your purse. Like, I've yeah. got you. Like, that's incredible to me. And I think like it, it just reminds me of, and I'm a nonfiction writer, so it always reminds me of, um, you know, when you're sitting around a campfire and somebody's telling a story and you're leaning in and everyone's eyes are wide and, you know, then they're like, oh, is that true? And, you know, because it matters because it moves us because it it somehow affects our own sense of our own humanity and what's possible in our own lives or it just it, there's some magic there that is really influences me. And on the off, so to answer the other flip side, I think being a writer has really helped my um, theater toolbox because the architecture of a story is something that I've been, you know, kind of casing that joint for 20 years <laughs> um, or more yeah. and just looking at like, well, what makes something interesting and, you know, detail and, you know, just how do you write something where it feels alive? And there's a couple times, you know, translating from the page to the stage and back is really quite something. And that's something I've also engaged in. Like, even in this latest round, Jan and I would sit there and I would say something and I'd be like, oh, that's not actually how I'd say it. That feels Mm. a little too literary. Mm -hmm. That's not how it would come out of my mouth. Right. It sounds weird. Yeah. It sounds wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That mouth feel isn't there for me. (laughs) And then we'd rewrite it. Like, well, how did she say like, how did you say it? Just say it to me like, you know, how would you say this? Like, Mm -hmm. you're telling me this, you know. As a friend, you know, over a glass of wine. So Sure. Yeah, it's and I think this is we've had this conversation. There's definitely plays that are really better read than they are, you know, meant to be performed. Experienced. Experienced, you know. And so, yeah, it's really it's an interesting thing to play with when you start as, you know, this is going to be a piece of literature and then we have to change it for the (laughs) stage. And it's a completely different type of language use. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think, well, you and I both saw Pride and Prejudice recently. And right. I was thinking about that. I just read your article, which I like. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> and I was thinking about how she, that author, Kate Hamill, was able to translate some moments that are very literary. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is, yeah, it's a novel. So <laughs> it is a novel. <laughs> and it doesn't just jump into dramatic treatment at all, I don't right. think. No, so, no, no. There's a lot of like sitting in rooms. Yeah. There's a lot of sitting mm-hmm. in rooms yeah. and talking and ruminating. And then there there are just some ways she consolidated like a whole bunch of narrative effectively into a gesture or yeah, the gesture. Um and and there I was thinking, gosh, it's so much material, you know, a novel down to a, uh, you know, one one twenty minute, one hundred twenty minute, you know, performance, and right. and then I was thinking about one one person shows and how they have their own kind of methods and challenges to enliven the subject even even if it didn't come from pre-existing sort of literary material it's like just how do you in enliven without another actor there right that Uh, was a really interesting challenge and i think that's the creative challenge of the one person show um who do you interact with and I think, Elaine, for you getting to be in the theater, you got to have props that became mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. your ensemble. The other, mm-hmm. the other actor, mm-hmm. in a way. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. And um, 
there's there's the props were amazing. So um, Benoni Cortez in town was helped us with some props and created this amazing egg hat that I'm fully in love with and um, all kinds of props. <laughs> and, you know, he's just it's just it was so fun thinking about that, too. Like, how do you physicalize some of this? And as a comedian, you're you're I think about that. How do I how can I physicalize things? And but it's also the sound cues. Like being able to mm-hmm. use like mm-hmm. sound, like you have the canvas yeah. of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, we had 70 sound cues. Thank nice. you, Tyler. Thank you know, you, Tyler. and it was so, it's so fun to punctuate and animate yeah. things and underscore things. And that becomes a whole, uh, you know, character in the show. The thing about um, United Solo is because it's such a uh, basic light board, we did not have lighting wasn't really a character in the show. Right. And, it, you know, at center stage, it can be a character and in a lot of theaters it can. So the lighting wasn't in this show, but the sound cues were so strong that I felt like that was also a really great way. And, you know, I do some dancing. There's some audience invitation things. <laughs> There's some other things to, you know, kind of keep that energy going. Yeah. So there was this balance of animating the word, but then also relying on the word, mm-hmm. letting the word be your net, your safety net. Mm-hmm. You, Elaine is just, you know, an exquisite yeah. writer and very visual in her writing anyway. So to find this balance of letting gesture and show uh, come together with the word as good as it is. And I also have to say, I love, um, this is a shout out to Julie. So Julie went to Juilliard and she just is such an accomplished, amazing actress herself. And the things that she was able to teach me was amazing. Um, you know, just about, uh, just sometimes how simple can be the hardest to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be times where in a really kind of sad scene or something that was really intense, like where I, you know, I, sometimes I look like a, I'm about to take off like a bird. I have so many <laughs> gestures. And, you know, she would be like, no, let's try that with nothing. Yeah. Just with yeah. nothing. Mm-hmm. Just your voice. And so the kind of direction and ability that she was able to give me for um, for range, you know, sometimes just making it more simple was incredibly effective. Julie Vachelle and nuance. Just, yes. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. Mm. Masterclass. Yeah. 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 Right there. Yeah. Pulling it back. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a delicate balance, right? You mm-hmm. you have to know when to hit the gas pedal and when to right. And you can't do any of that until you get it up on its feet. That's true. Right. It's one thing sure. to sit right. there in a room and do you know be in the writer's room and work it and work it, but until you get it up on its feet, yeah. you don't know what you're dealing with. And for you, especially having this be one of your earlier theatrical exploits like you know you haven't had 20 years of getting it into your bones right you know you you have the way that you read your pieces uh which is very animated and is very theatrical but it's as we've pointed out it's completely different than to carry a solo show yeah absolutely yeah absolutely for how long how long is it it's 78 minutes 78 minutes that's a long and talking about the energy that it takes to be up there on a solo show Mm -hmm. one time i read the show from start to finish just for timing purposes only but i tried to do it in the way that it's read i was exhausted and oh, i yeah. was only yeah. reading it i'm not on the stage performing it and giving giving my all to yeah. the audience That's leaving right. it all on yeah stage. we learned a few things about that did we not definitely definitely mm-hmm. definitely yeah. i think i've done um a few one person shows and i think the thing that's always in my, the forefront of my mind when i see the first performance is like is you know, something you don't think of a lot with other places, like, is this actor going to remember 
his or her lines because (laughs) you get lost in a a one-person show in a way you can't really get lost Mm -hmm. when you have a scene partner and kind of go. Right, an anchor. Were Mm -hmm. you going to ask me about my Mm -hmm. trip to Paris? (laughs) I feel like you were, weren't you? (laughs) Did you ask about Paris earlier? You know, they'll they'll help you or they'll do something. And, uh, you know, you could kind of get jolted back. But I think there's something like Durang's actor's nightmare is the actor alone on stage. Mm-hmm. Going, Did it stress what? you out? Well, you know, yeah, well, it's the only kind of work I've done. So it's just like in this way alone. Yeah. So, but I think what was interesting for me, speaking of this idea of scene partner, is that you know, before when we did the, the show a year ago at Center Stage, we were able to use projections. So, you know, right. we had maybe 40 or so, you know, projections that were big, like 10 by 10 above my head. Now for this, this was such a small space. There was no projection in New York, you know, like you had to have something else. And so we had the this easel where mm. we had these vinyls and we would flip. And I think we ended with up photographs. With, with photographs and that we would flip. And they became a scene partner, mm-hmm. which ah, was really yeah. in a way that you can't with a huge projection over your head sure. where you can kind of interact with them and cuddle up to them and point things out and hug it, you know, <laughs> all these things. So that was really fun for me. At first I thought, oh, this is, you know, how can I do this without projected images, you know? And then mm-hmm. it was like, oh, this is really kind of old school and intimate. And just the physicality of it was really fun. You know, I had a pointer, so I'd like point things out. And, you know, it ended up just being a blast. Those gestures became your scene partner. They, yeah. Be, yep, yeah. 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 So so that was really fun. And, you know, before I would, it was actually perfect because before I went to New York at, at the Riviera here in town, there was the documentaries of Gilda Radner and Joan Jett. Right. And so I watched both of those and, you know, I ended up putting all the greatest hits of Joan Jett on my iPhone. And that's what I would listen to like before I went out. <laughs> yes. Just getting that like spirit of, of, you know, punk rock and getting the spirit of these amazing women um, and just getting that spirit of it's almost like if you stand up in public and I know this because I'm a public speaking professor <laughs> that you it's like this terrifying feeling in your body like you could die you know, before you go out and you ha- you have to like talk yourself out of that. Like, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. and so I was like, I found Joan Jett to be the perfect kind of penetrating, rich. you know, yeah. yeah, rich, um, punk rock musicality to get me out there. So that's what I was doing before the show. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that. Just I love throw that. that in. Yeah. So <laughs> I took Santa Barbara. So I took Santa Barbara with me. To some Joan Jett right now. David always knows all the songs. I feel like, like David I, could I do it. You know, a couple know Joan Jett songs. Do you want to touch me? Do you, <laughs> you want to touch me there? <laughs> I hate myself for loving you. <laughs> Anyway, I can't sing. Singing, this is, it's not One Good Egg the musical. So maybe I should just quit while I'm ahead. Not maybe that, maybe that's the, I was going to say, maybe that's the next iteration of this. Right. So yeah. where, where do no you limits. see this going in the future? Are you, is this like, we've done it, it's done. Do you want to keep going with it or change it more? Or are you going to move on to something else? Good segue, Maggie. That's great. Well, yeah, it felt really um, creatively so satisfying this time. Like the egg was baked. It was, it felt great. Um, but I think, you know, we have, people have been very excited about the show. So there's some interest in the show and some strong interest in taking it on tour. And mm. also, um, we're talking to a producer now about having the show go to Los Angeles and have a run in LA. Oh, great. Um, and then also I am, 
completely compelled to, I have a 250 page manuscript, um, for, for this that I'm going to finish in the next six months. And I'd like to get that as a book out in the world, also the memoir version. So kind of going back to my creative origins there, but wow. Awesome. Well, we get to hear some of this, right? So Yes, we would definitely love to hear. So should we just a little taste? Sure. A little taste. Have a, a bite of egg. Of just it. have a, just, <laughs> just a little just a little yeah. a little egg salad. We'll do a, a little scramble. scramble. We'll take a little moment. <laughs> okay. And we transition. will take a quick break and then we will hear some of Elaine Gale reading One Good Egg. So when I was writing the show, I spent six months studying eggs, which was extremely fun and exciting. And there was one book I read that I loved. It was called On Food and Cooking, The Science and Lore of the Kitchen by Harold McGee. And I found this amazing quote about eggs. I don't use it in the show, but I put it on all the programs. The egg does embody the chain of creation from the developing chick back through the hen to the plants that fed her and then to the ultimate source of life's fire the yellow sphere of the sky. An egg is the sun's light refracted into life. So I love that. And I found that the egg was the perfect metaphor to carry the show. So I'm going to start, I'm just going to read an excerpt from the beginning of the show. One good egg. I love eggs. I love their curves, their colors, the idea of a life developing inside of an egg. Even my initials are E.G., you're a good egg. You too. There's another one. Tyler, you're a good egg. That's my stage manager. I love that expression. We used to call people that in the Midwest where I grew up. The show has a pajama theme. It's a light motif, thus my costume. Plus, I love pajamas and I consider them legitimate clothes. Not everyone does. One time, I went to the grocery store in pajamas and a woman in line ahead of me slipped the cashier her credit card and bought my groceries for me. worth. She thought I was homeless. I ran after her, but I'm a tenured professor. Sure you are, dear, she said, patting my arm. Don't worry, God told me to do it. Great. These eggs are good. I love the shape of an egg. It's perfect. And eggs are shape-shifters. Scrambled, hard-boiled, over-easy, fried, pickled, fermented, whipped, runny, sunny-side up. The incredible edible egg. Eggs can change forms, like make something dense like custard, or light and fluffy like a meringue. They're strong. They can bind or thicken. But they're also fragile. I love the slime of egg whites and the perfect glob of golden yolk, and that weird stringy thing that could have been a chicken, but it's not. Instead, it's just possibility. Something that could have happened, but didn't. I always tried to get this weird stringy thing out of the batter when I was making cakes because it made me too sad. When my little brother moved to Laramie, Wyoming, there wasn't a lot to do there. So he started raising chickens and he taught me how chickens need grit in their feed to help form an eggshell. This story is about grit. I'm from Nebraska, sixth generation. If we all started out as an egg, then that's where my carton's from. So I'm organic but not local. I'm not a typical Midwesterner. They don't tend to do colon cleanses, wheatgrass implants, check their auras. 
or meditate on the power of now. Now is something that goes on and on in the Midwest, like a tumbleweed rolling over and over down Interstate 80. My address growing up was 4241 Normal Boulevard. But I've been in California now for 15 years, so I'm a geographical hybrid. On the one hand, I have a spiritual intuitive, an evolutionary astrologer, a numerologist, a Mayan abdominal worker, a life coach. I make homemade sage bundles, use a neti pot. I have a kombucha scoby in my freezer, a frisbee of bacteria, right alongside my dog's frozen testicles. We couldn't bear to just have them thrown in the trash by the vet when he got neutered. We meant to bury them somewhere in a meaningful ritual, but never got around to it. I labeled them after realizing that the dog sitter might mistake it for frozen chicken. Anyway, on the other hand, I can clog. I know how to do the pretzel from rodeo dancing in high school. I own cowboy boots. I've been a mall walker. I enjoy a good seven-layer dip or a tater tot casserole. I'm a size 14. In other words, I'm one of the thinnest humans in middle America, home of the all-you-can-eat buffet. My East Coast aunt once said to me, Elaine, you know the great thing about you? I was like, oh my God, what? I'm a middle child. I'm insecure. I'm like, tell me. She said, you don't gain weight in your face. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm practical and friendly. Two more great things about me. I reuse tea bags and I wave to everyone, even when I'm driving, sometimes using the classic Nebraska one finger wave. It's still exciting to me to see a person and not a cow. So the state motto of Nebraska is the good life, home of Arbor Day. And for a good life, you were supposed to follow the checklist, handed down from generation to generation on stone tablets. This is how it went. Don't get arrested. Don't get pregnant. Graduate from high school. Graduate from college. Get a good job. Get married. Buy a house. Get pregnant. Get pregnant. Possibly get pregnant again. Eventually retire from a meaningful career and then die. I tried to follow the list, but I barely got to check off number one. I got arrested in high school for minor in possession of alcohol, disturbing the peace, and destruction of property. Although that was just a Dan Quayle yard sign, so it was fine. So they were all barely my fault. I did have to plant a lot of trees for my community service. And that concludes all of our United Solo Fest artists. Shows in this year. That's fantastic. Everyone should keep writing, keep, keep writing, producing, keep writing out there, keep going to New York. And thanks to our producer here, David Paris. And thanks to Miles Austin for our fun music and sound effects. Yeah, look for our links to Villiers Jets, our sponsor on our website. And all, and all of the information about One Good Egg and Elaine Gale's show and where it will be popping up all over the country will be on our website as well. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, Anna. Bye-bye. Bye.